Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. John chapter 10, I'm going to be reading other verses through the chapter this morning, but just starting off with the first five verses, and this really sets the stage for the story that is in John 10. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, this is Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It's forever settled in heaven. It's anointed, it is sacred, and it deserves our respect this morning. And Lord, as we approach your word, which is divinely inspired and, and is the breath of your spirit and writing, Lord, we ask that this word would speak to our hearts and our minds, that it would transform us, that it would lead us in paths of righteousness that this word this morning, not my words, but your word, your divine word, would captivate our heart, capture our minds, Lord, and it would draw us to worship Jesus as God. Lord, this morning it's our prayer. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we read the Bible, we are often confronted with word pictures that aren't familiar to us. That's because the Bible was written thousands of years ago on the other side of the world and life was different. It's not to say that there aren't shepherds today in certain parts of the world. There's a lot of shepherds and sheep farms. But it's something, especially in our urban, suburban culture, uh, I don't think anybody here this morning is a sheep farmer. But it was common in, in their day, and so it's what Jesus uses so they can understand it. Shepherds and sheep farming were very common. We see this in the Old Testament. The analogies start in the Old Testament. The most famous chapter in the world is probably Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It's because David was a shepherd, so he's... He knows how to compare this to what he does. I herd sheep, and this is what the Lord does to us. I am a sheep, and he is the shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. We as the people of God are referred to often as sheep. Even in the New Testament, Paul in Acts 20 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus is the great shepherd. 
Pastors are often referred to as shepherds, but pastors are also sheep. Pastors are simply under-shepherds, under the great shepherd, because there is only one great shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus uses this analogy to the people that day, the details of the story would have been very familiar in a first century context where lots of people were sheep farmers. And so in verses 1 through 6, he starts using this word picture. There is a sheep pen. It's probably a large enclosure where several families keep their sheep, and he is leading his sheep out of it. There's, it's not just one big flock, but there's multiple flocks inside of this one pen, and he's using the language that I go in through the gate, through the door, and when I call my sheep, they know my voice, and they, they come together and they follow me. And anybody else who tries to do this, they don't come through the door, they try to climb over the fence on the backside. He said, they're thieves and robbers. So who are the thieves and the robbers? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us here, but if we are to use the Old Testament as a background, in Ezekiel 34, God takes the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, to task for failing to look after the flock. The watchman or the under-shepherd opens the door for the shepherd, and the shepherd walks in and he calls his Sheep, And so Jesus goes through the gate and he calls the sheep and now they know his voice and they start to follow him. And this assumes again that there are several flocks in the pen and they don't all follow the shepherd. Only his sheep will follow his voice. It has been known in the Near Eastern sheep farming world and business that multiple shepherds could stand in multiple spots around the pen and they would each call out, for their sheep, and the sheep would know each shepherd's voice, and they would begin to, to separate and begin to go in their own flock and gather to follow their shepherd. This particular shepherd, Jesus says, calls each of them by name, that each sheep mattered individually to the shepherd. He leads them out. And it's here, I, I want to stop and, and make a very important point on this idea that Jesus leads them out. There has been a massive push in modern Western evangelical Christianity to focus on leadership. I know, I know the pressure that has been on ministry to read books on leadership from the business world. Pastors are highly encouraged. Preachers are highly pushed to read books on leadership. The same books that are read by <clears throat> CEOs and CFOs and entrepreneurs, this is often what makes up the library of a lot of preachers. And it is assumed that pastors and preachers and ministers must be great leaders. They must have an executive mind. They must be highly trained in the ways of management and leadership. That's a very modern construct to put on the preacher. My question this morning is, whatever happened to followership? What happened to us being good followers of Jesus? The Apostle Paul did speak of leadership in 1 Corinthians 11, but he used follower language. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And if I stop, now Paul didn't say this, this is where I'm inserting this to any type of ministry. If I stop following Christ, you better have enough discernment on your own to stop following me. No one is worthy of following down the path to hell. I was talking to my oldest son last night, 
we were at a restaurant, we were talking about uh, something that I had been reading and kind of watching the night before uh, that really fascinates me, and that's the whole saga in the 70s of, of Jim Jones and the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre. How a man who, with a uh, Pentecostal-type background, uh, was raised in that environment that it could uh, devolve into something like it was, to where at the end that people were, uh, and I looked into this more, that people, you know, how did he amass uh, with mostly the, the poor and the disenfranchised of society, that's who uh, he attracted. They were looking for something. Uh, and this is in the 1970s. He amassed somewhere around eight to $10 million in bank accounts that they never could completely account for. Equivalent today to, you know, who knows, probably $50 million that one man could amass. And I thought, how did, how, where did that money come from? Uh, on people who didn't have much of anything. And it's because people in the masses were cashing over their entire Social Security check to him every single month. He amassed $250,000 in income every month, and that's 1970s dollars. And then would have people to, to take a thousand plus people to another country and do what they did, and, and just the horrific uh, things that happened there. Follow me as I follow Christ, and if I stop following Christ, you better stop following me. Never follow a man or a denomination or a movement or a theological system blindly. Make sure at the head of the line that you're following is the man Christ Jesus and that the Holy Spirit is present and is mediating everything that's going on there and guiding and blessing. The question has often been asked, I wasn't the first one that asked the question, but the question is often asked in, in church settings, if God was to remove His Spirit from what was going on, how much could continue to go on and how many people would even notice? It's the warning in Revelation where Jesus is talking to the church and He says, I'm going to give you some warnings about this, this, and this. And if you don't heed to that, I am going to remove my candlestick from your midst. And how many churches has God stepped in and removed the candlestick from the midst and people never even paid attention that God was no longer in the mix? We want to follow Christ. I'm not as interested as being a great leader with a business mind as I am being somebody that can say, there's Christ, let's all go follow Him together. That's who we should be following as the great shepherd. It is known even today that Western shepherds, people in the Western world who are shepherds, they drive their sheep. They get behind them and they drive them. But shepherds in the Near East then and today have a different method of shepherding their sheep. They lead their flocks. They rely on their voice to call them to where they are and the sheep follow them. And Jesus says in verse 5, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Learn to know God's voice. One of the greatest prayers that you could pray is God make me sensitive to what is the voice of the Spirit so that you yourself can discern between the authentic and the counterfeit. Be able to discern when something doesn't smell right. Does it pass the smell test? Uh, I, I have a very poor sense of smell. It's almost non-existent, I think. My wife could detect a dairy farm 10 miles away. Uh, and so when I when that expiration date on the milk is getting close to the end and 
I'm leery, I, I smell it, and then I take it to her. You know, smell this. Is, does this pass the, the smell test? There are a lot of books and YouTube videos and podcast sermons and pastors who come in the name of Christianity that don't pass the smell test. And there are a lot that do. I'm just saying have a sense of discernment. The headline, one of the headlines this morning on uh, one of the major news, news networks was from a leading evangelical preacher talking about how evangelicalism is splintering apart before our eyes in the United States. And it is. There are, there, there are some issues in uh, the, the term that's thrown around a lot is Big Eva, E-V-A. Big Eva is just big evangelicalism. And there are, there's issues there that are making national headlines even in the secular news. Know what is authentic and know what is true. Because for everything that there is a counterfeit, there is a corresponding authentic that you can be part of. John writes about this and later in one of his epistles, not in the gospel. John writes several books in the New Testament. He has the gospel, but then he has 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he writes, we believe the book of Revelation. So in 1st John 4, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they come from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. There is a man of sin, the son of perdition, we call the Antichrist. There will be a man to be revealed that holds this title. It's not going to be on his business card. It's not going to say John Doe Antichrist. But this is what the Bible calls him. And he is a man that is yet to be revealed. But the spirit of the Antichrist has been around forever. John says 2,000 years ago, the spirit of the Antichrist You've heard was coming, it's now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for He is in you. That is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He's talking about discernment. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Discern the spirits. Jesus said, a stranger they will not follow. So all of this that Jesus said is a figure of speech. He, he gives this analogy like he does, this word picture, and they're not quite following him. Um, so Jesus resets and he speaks directly. But you can't think of the verses that follow as merely an explanation of what he just said because the imagery changes. First, Jesus said, I am the shepherd who goes into the gate and then he says, I am the gate. Like, I don't go into the gate. Now I am the door. Now he leads sheep in and out to find pasture. Now hired hands are introduced further in the chapter. And now the shepherd dies for his sheep. You, you can't think of the way that Jesus talks here and in other places where he does this as a story where there's the, all these 
images that have assigned fixed identities and positions. It's not a story. It's a metaphor. So he gets to mix up the role of, of who does what, and it, it helps to, to read and to know this when you read this type of, of writings from Jesus. He's just mixing metaphors to try to prove a point. He's trying to get this idea in their heads, whatever it takes. I am the way, the truth, the life. You've got to believe in me. I am the divine Son of God. That's what he's trying to communicate. But it's all a metaphor, and Jesus isn't afraid to bend the metaphors to serve His purpose. Purpose, Namely, that you get and understand the identity of who Jesus Christ really is. So John, so John continues to record the words of Jesus. If you look at verse 7, Jesus again says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. What Jesus is trying to communicate here is that there is only one entrance into the kingdom. Only one door, only one gate, and that is Christ Jesus himself. He didn't say, I open the door for you. He said, I am the door. And if you enter by the door, you get to go in and out and find pasture, grazing, feeding. This is where the sheep belong. This is where they can be fed and be in community with other sheep. But the door is the person of Christ himself. And then he says, there's a difference between a true shepherd and a hired hand. A, a true shepherd fights. Like, a shepherd is a bad dude. This is not a guy holding a little fuzzy lamb that's cuddling with it all the time. The shepherd has to fight. It's a tough job. It's, it's dangerous. They're not out there coddling and cuddling the sheep. David was a true shepherd. He fought a lion and he fought a bear. It trained him for what he was going to have to do later in life. He understood responsibility. He understood what it meant to stand up and fight. A hired hand doesn't face down the lion and the bear. The, the lion comes out and the hired hand says, I'm getting paid you know, $5 an hour to care for these smelly sheep and I can go die for that. He goes, no, I'm out of here. I'll go find another job. And he takes off and runs. It's the difference between a hired hand and a real shepherd. And let me tell you, there are wolves out there. There are lions intent on killing the sheep. So John continues to record, and Jesus says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice, and so there will be one flock and one shepherd. It's likely here, he's speaking of the Gentiles, he's initially talking about calling out his sheep from Judaism. That's the context where he's talking to Jewish leaders, and he says there's other sheep of the fold. It's generally accepted he's speaking of Gentiles. But the point here that we need to understand is that the gospel is going into all the world. There is only one flock and only one shepherd. There is only one kingdom of God. There are different churches, 
more denominations that just continue to splinter uh, continually, movements, uh, parachurch ministries. There's a lot going on out there in the name of religion. It's not up to me to decide solely, well, that person's part of the kingdom and that person's not. Now, we can take Scripture and, and all this and say, okay, are they aligning to some <coughs> fundamental orthodox confessions and ideas about Christianity, but ultimately God only has one kingdom. You can't corner the God market. This is why we can confess, and it's a, it's a creed that often is confessed as kind of a general summation of Christianity. And that's the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. Now here's the part that might throw us, that we can confess if we understand what it means. This is what I mean by God having one kingdom. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Can you confess that you are part of the Holy Catholic Church? Well, you can if you understand what the word means in the context of the creed. Um, Catholic simply means universal. That there is one kingdom that God has. This is why Protestants all over the world continually confess that I believe in one holy Catholic Church. This is not the Roman Catholic Church. This is not capital Roman Catholic. This is not what that is when you, we talk about this. Uh, we are not Catholic in any way, shape, or form in that sense. We know that. But we are Catholic in the sense that the church is universal, that it goes into every people group. It is diverse in skin color and age and ethnicity and language and culture. Uh, that's what it means when it talks about uh, the, the Catholicness of the church. It simply means universal, not the Roman Catholic Church. Two separate ideas going on there. And so we can confess that, that we are part of a universal body of believers that serve Him. So then John says, writes, records Jesus' words in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd that dies for the sheep. And Jesus makes a real good point here that we have to get. Jesus says, I do this willingly. Nobody takes my life from me. I give it. Which means he knows, and this isn't the only place in Scripture, he knows that he is on a path. He is on a journey, on a destiny to meet his death. He is foretelling his own death. He knows he's going to die, and he knows that he is going to be resurrected and live again. But he wants people to know, you're not coming after me, taking my life against my own will. I give my life voluntarily, gladly for my sheep. Let us be a people that never tire of saying and preaching and singing about Jesus dying for our sins. It is the center of the gospel. It is our salvation. And it keeps us humble and centered because we know that we are righteous in Christ 
because of what Christ did and not of our own merit. It saves us from pride. When I meet a proud, arrogant Christian, it lets me know real fast that they forgot the source of their salvation. They forgot where their help comes from. They think they're doing it on their own. But as the songwriter and the poet said, upon a life I did not live and upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. It keeps us humble. The Bible says there's a feast in Jerusalem during the winter and Jesus is in the temple and the Jews gather and they ask Him, they ask Him plainly, they said, are you the Christ? We know there's a coming Messiah. Are you Him? And so He picks back up on the shepherd metaphor. This is... It looks like there's a little bit of space and time there between the original, what we just read, but he goes right back into this. And he says, verse 25, I told you, and you don't believe me, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one Boy, this ought to help us sleep at night. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, that last phrase, I and the Father are one, that's not an isolated statement. He just puts a bow on what he is saying in the verses before. It's connected to everything else he says, and it answers the question of if he is the Christ. Remember, that's the question that's being posed, and that's what he's trying to answer. He's just beyond brilliant on the way he does it. So he uses his whole sheep farming analogy, and then he starts talking about how what the Father does and what I do are the same thing, and you just ask me if I'm the Messiah, and he sums it up by saying, I and the Father are one. He answers it to answer the question of if He is the Christ. He says that no one can snatch them out of My hand, and the Father gave them to Me, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then He tells us why. That's because I and the Father are one. You can't snatch the sheep out of the Father's hand or by My hand because we are in perfect union and, and oneness. We are together. We are one. This is, he's trying to get this idea to answer the question, yes, I am the Messiah. Now, God is spirit. We know this. God is spirit. It's his nature. You cannot, the Bible says, no man has seen God at any time. God is spirit. He fills all time and all space. Jesus is a human being who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, but he is human. It, he, he's not human-like. He is a human being. There, there was a 25 years ago or so, there was a mass that happened in Ethiopia. Uh, started, started there from a leader in, in uh, the church there. And it was, came out, it was the divine flesh doctrine. And a man who was my pastor at the time um, received a, a phone call from the man who was leading uh, a large part of that organization and said, uh, this man who is in our organization is, uh, and we're selling his books, has anybody actually read this book? Um, like what he's teaching here, this isn't right. And they begin to look into it closer and it became a, 
It became a big deal. Uh, it caused literally millions of people to separate uh, away and kind of a split uh, in, in an organization because of what was known as the divine flesh doctrine. I'm not going to get into all what that doctrine taught, um, but it really detracts uh, from the reality of, of who and, and what Jesus Christ is. He's not human-like. He's not an android. Uh, he's not a robot that looks like a human. He is a person. He is a man, the man Christ Jesus. I think we're very rich in the doctrine of the deity of Christ, but we are anemic in the idea of His humanity because we know Him 2,000 years separated from when He walked the earth. And we have, I don't think most of us have an issue understanding He's God, but I think we really struggle to know and, and picture Him as a man who walked and slept and ate and just lived life. He was raised. He had to learn language. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn a trade. He was a human being who walked among us. And yet he says, I and my Father are one. Rightly understanding the Godhead is to understand this and then to confess that Jesus is Lord and He is divine. The earliest Jewish Christians included Jesus in the identity of the one true God of Israel in a way that they could at the same time confess there is only one God and at the same time confess Jesus is Lord. Because this was a huge issue for the Jews that came to faith. Because the one thing the Jews know is that our God is one. That not the idea, I talked about this a few weeks ago, not the idea that there's only one God. The idea that there's only one God would be absolutely foreign to anybody living at that time. Uh, that is not what was believed. Uh, there's lots of gods. Uh, there's lots of lowercase g gods. There's lots of, in, in, I'm talking about in Judaism, there is semi-divine figures and other divine figures. I mean, it, it, it gets a mess really fast. Never mind what's in the broader culture of, of the ancient Near East world, of all these idols and, and all that's going on. The idea was that the God that we serve, Yahweh, the Lord our God, is one. We serve one God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the God of gods. He sits above anything else that's divine. Now, a lot of this we can push back 2,000 years later on the accuracy of what they believe, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about what they believed at that time. To understand this is to understand that the Jewish Christians had to wrestle with the idea that this man that walks among us and just died and ascended was actually God, but God's Spirit and there's only one God. They wrestled with this from day one. And the earliest Jewish Christians brilliantly included Jesus in the identity of the one true God of Israel in a way that they could again say, there is only one God and Jesus is Lord. They could do this because Jesus did so by including Himself in the identity of the one true God of Israel. I and my Father are one. And He said, I, I told you and you don't believe because you're not my sheep. If you were, you'd know my voice and you'd follow me. So, I finish this morning with three promises to those who are His sheep. The first one is in verse 10. My sheep will have life and that life more abundantly. What a promise. This is such a promise that over the last 
I don't know, especially 30, 40 years, a lot of churches have been named Abundant Life Church. That was a common, like now you see, you know, I see all kinds of kind of bizarre church names today. Like I, I see some church, I saw somebody yesterday, I can't remember what it was, but I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt and I thought, how did you come up with that name for a church? Uh, but there's always been these popular names, and over the years, abundant life. There were lots of abundant life churches. And it comes from John 10.10. 10. Jesus came to give them life, and that life more abundantly. The next promise is eternal life. That's not what he says here. He's not saying, I'll give you eternal life. He's going to say that in a minute, but right here he's saying, the life I give you is going to be abundant. And because of that, we worship him for it. This is a very important point, is that we don't just follow Christ. We're not just disciples of Christ. We worship Him because He is God. We don't just pat Him on the back. We don't just say thank you. We don't admire Him from a distance. We fall at His feet and we worship Him. You cannot be a Christian if you cannot confess with everything within you, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He's not one-third God. He is fully and wholly God. We worship Him. He is in complete unity with His Father. The Holy Spirit that fills this room today is the Spirit of Christ that is, that is issuing forth from Him. It is His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not one-third of God. It is the Spirit of Christ Himself that fills this room. We worship Jesus as God, the one true God. Jesus is the one true God of the Old Testament. The, the kind of a litmus test that I use to understand if people understand the Godhead properly is if you understand that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ in flesh. It's not another God, it is the one true God of the Old Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come to dwell among us. He is the Creator. The New Testament can't be more clear about this, that Christ is the Creator. It places Him as the Creator of all things. We worship Him. We bow at His feet. So what does this have to do with abundant life? How did I go off on a, on a tangent about worshiping Him when I just said He gives us abundant life? And I would say it has everything to do with it. We have abundant life through Him, in Him, by worshiping Him. The prosperity gospel charlatans and shysters and hucksters would have you think that abundant life is what you get by following Christ. You follow Christ and in return He gives you an open checkbook. I would say a thousand times no. Jesus said in Luke 12, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You don't really need a preacher to do a lot of unpacking on a verse like that. It's pretty clear. There are some things in Scripture that are hard to understand. This isn't one of them. Jesus says one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Done. He's not leaving any wiggle room there. He's simply saying it doesn't matter. You're not measured by how much stuff you have. And just because a person has lots of stuff is not automatically mean it's a mark of God's blessing on their life. There are filthy rich atheists in the world today. It doesn't mean that God gave them all that stuff. There are wealthy Christians today. 
I'm not saying a Christian can't be wealthy. I'm just saying if they are, it's not the metric of God's blessing on their life. There are other metrics. That's not one of them. The Scripture is very clear on this. The reason why certain preachers can stare into a camera and get you to send in your seed money when you're probably not going to be able to pay your bills, but you're going to send in that seed money is because they're not anchoring anything they're saying to the biblical text. Or if they are, they're doing some serious twisting of the text. They're what we call proof texting. They're plucking something out of its context. This is why we do expository preaching. This is why we are Bible saturated people because we need to know what the text says abundant life has nothing to do with your abundance it has everything to do with his abundance of grace and mercy and we partake in that abundance by worshiping jesus as god second promise he said my sheep have the gift of eternal life that is a major theme if you haven't picked up on it yet in this series on john so we preach through John. It's a major theme in the book of John is the gift of eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but should have what? Everlasting life. John 4, the woman at the well, he continues on. It's just this theme of eternal life. If you believe in Jesus and believe what He says is true, then you will believe that you will live forever. I listened to a, a podcast yesterday by a, a guy who I, I like listening to on a lot of subjects. He is a leading world-class physicist, and uh, I have a layman's interest in that subject, and I listen to a lot of things on that, and he can break it down into a way that somebody who is not formally trained like myself in that field can understand. And I, I like listening to those things because it does help un kind of unravel uh, as they try to unravel just how God put all this together. And there has been, as they all readily admit, the last hundred years there has been very, very, very little advancement in that field. All physicists are in pursuit of one um, equation that will wrap everything and put a little bow on it. They call it the theory of everything. And uh, they, they have chased it now. Uh, it's, it's, it's evaded them for now a hundred years. Uh, but it fascinates me. And this one particular guy that I like to listen to, he was really throwing under the bus the idea that there is eternal life. It's the one thing that people want, so what does religion give them? Religion gives them what people want. People want to live forever. Here comes religion swooping in and saying, yes, you can live forever. It's kind of a thing, not just of Christianity, but of a lot of religions. If you do this, this, and this, you can live forever. And people like that would like people to think that it's, you know, the, the modern mind should not believe in such nonsense, that when you die, that's it, there's nothing more. Um, and this is where we come into what it means to believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe His words. And it means that when He says you're going to live forever, you believe that your body will perish, but your body is not you. It's the vehicle in which you travel in this present age. But there is an age to come where if you are in Christ, you are going to receive a resurrected body, a glorified body. Paul said it's going to be like unto Christ's glorified body, and you are going to live forever somewhere. 
And this is true whether you are in Christ or not. You have a soul that will live on forever somewhere. I don't like the idea of eternal damnation. I don't get satisfaction by talking about it, but the Bible is clear that there's something there. A lot of the questions that have come up, and I've even had friends of mine um, that I did ministry with for years, one in particular that really questioned the idea of hell. Uh, is, it, is it literal? And I said, it, it, the question of if it's literal and if it's real are two different questions. I said, I don't think the Bible leaves any room for if it's real. I said, and if it's the question of is it a literal lake of fire, I said, I don't know. That very well may be just an image. I said, but what happens in Scripture with images and metaphors is that when there is something that is so fantastic and extraordinary that cannot be explained with words, we take word pictures and metaphors and assign it to it. I said, let me tell you something about hell. It's either a literal lake of fire or it's a metaphor for something so horrific that only a lake of fire can stand as a word picture to describe it. I said, either way, I said, it's a place you do not want to end up in. Either way. And it's uncomfortable because you don't hear the, the stories about. You don't hear this in, in pulpits a lot of times. But I can tell you, Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did heaven. It's at the top of the number of subjects that he talked about repeatedly. The imagery that he used was, hey, outside the city here in Jerusalem, there's this, uh, there's this uh, dump. It's what it was. It was a city dump where they threw their garbage outside of the city, and it was a continual smoldering fire. And that's the imagery he used to say that this is what eternal punishment is like. But there is eternal life. I was... The good news, is there good news about hell? Yeah, there is. The good news about hell is you don't have to go there. The good news about hell is that Jesus provided a way of escape. He's the door. You go through Him. And you have eternal, everlasting life. You don't have to be afraid of, of, of hell. You don't have to be afraid of eternal damnation. Christ has provided a way of escape for this. And the third promise, and this is the promise Honestly, I love this promise probably more out of the three, even more than eternal life, because I can't really grasp eternal life. I can't wrap my head around what that means. None of us can wrap our head around eternity, something that has no beginning or end. But I, this promise, I can, I can understand this promise. No one will snatch you out of his hand. Everything in life can be touched and taken. As Sister Peggy comes back to the to the music. Everything else in this life can be touched and taken. I love my family, but they can be taken. I have no guarantees that a trial in life will come and take everything that I have. I have no guarantees of that. I have no guarantees that a sickness will come and ravage my body that will take every asset I have and, and the ability to work and the ability to do anything. I don't have any guarantees that something won't come snatch everything that I have out of my hands. My health can be taken. My money can be taken. But I cannot be snatched out of His hand. He holds me secure. The Apostle Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. He asks the question and then he answers his own question, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You cannot be snatched out of the hand of Jesus Christ by anything or anybody. He holds you secure. And that fact alone ought to be enough to give us bulletproof joy for the rest of this week. When you're having a bad day, when things aren't going your way, if you can just tell yourself, Jesus said in John 10, none of my sheep will be snatched from my hand. No matter what trial we face, no matter what wolves attack us, nothing can snatch us from his hand. He holds us secure. That's a promise because we all feel like in life there's no sure thing. We all know that life's not fair. Read, I read a news story this week and I, it was a horrific story and I thought, wow, that wasn't fair. That was so unfair. Uh, those, those people just absolutely were the victim of time and chance and circumstance and I understand the sovereignty of, of God and, and all of that. Um, but just looking at that and saying, that's not fair. We know that in life nothing is a sure thing. There is one thing that's sure. I can't be snatched out of his hand. He holds me secure. Nobody can run past me and like a, a thief snatching a woman's purse off her shoulder and taking it off. It's not possible when you're in the hand of Christ. You're in him. He holds you fast. He holds you secure. And that's one thing that we can take solace and comfort in in a dark and broken world. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray one more time. Father, your word has went forth in this place this morning. You spoke words 2,000 years ago that still today echo down through the centuries, through the text, into our hearts, into our souls. You've given us promises this morning. You've talked about sheep and shepherds to display a greater reality of you as Lord of our lives. You've told us that we can have abundant life in this life. We just need to exalt in you and worship you. You've told us that we will have eternal life if we are in you. And you've told us that no matter what, that we are secure in you, that nothing can snatch us out of your hand and that's a promise we hold to when everything else falls apart we know that we are in Christ and we take comfort and solace in that Lord I pray this week that you would grant us wisdom you would help us to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit as you lead and guide and direct us throughout our lives that you would help us to make wise and good choices uh, that we understand that as the people of God, we are going to live radically different lives than that of the world around us. And we understand that and we embrace that today. I ask you, Lord, to keep your hand upon all of us, minister to all of us. And we'll give you the praise, the glory, and the honor 
ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.